Well, good morning to you all. I bid you welcome to the Apple Bible class this morning for those who are watching online as well. And we trust that you'll be blessed even as we gather around to study God's word and God's truth. I'm going to turn this morning to Jeremiah chapter 31, please. Jeremiah 31, and I'll read from verse 27 of this chapter and read through to verse 34. So Jeremiah, <coughs> excuse me, in the chapter 31, and reading from verse 27. So let us hear the word of our God. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that hath eaten a sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no, ma no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. We'll end at verse 34. And lovely words to finish on, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's look to the Lord, word of prayer, as we come before Him now, and just before we come to the study, and the Bible study for the adult Bible class. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do come before Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we thank the Lord for these wonderful words, O God, that Thou wilt forgive our iniquity. And our sin you will remember no more. You choose by thine own power and by thy will to not remember. A fascinating thought within itself. Thou who art omniscient. And there is nothing that thou dost not know. And yet Lord here we thank thee for the precious blood. We thank thee for the atonement made. And we thank thee Lord that as far as the east is from the west. So far hast thou removed our transgressions from us. And we thank the Lord you remember them no more. We thank the Lord that they're not uh, against our account, but our account, O God, has been washed. It has been uh, cleansed, O God, by the blood of the Lamb. And we thank the Lord for imputed righteousness. We thank the Lord that we come before thee this morning and we rejoice of our standing in Christ Jesus. We thank thee for the one. We thank thee for the one who came to fulfill, O God, the law. We thank the Lord for the one who laid down his life as a ransom for the many. And we rejoice, O God, in redemption through his blood, 
even the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we thank Thee that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more will You not give to us the Holy Ghost? Lord, we ask Thee in faith and upon the merit of the precious blood that Thou would send forth the Holy Ghost this day. May He come and help and infill every teacher, every Bible class teacher, our superintendent, Lord, ministers, O God. We pray that, Lord, in the pulpit and the pew, the children in the seat will know what it is to have the Holy Ghost operate amongst us and through us, even this day as we gather in thy house. Make it a day of rich blessing. Lord, we lift our eyes to thee. We covet, we long for the Holy Ghost to come. We long for the perfect liberty of the Spirit. We often feel our own weakness, yea, our own bondage. And yet, Lord, we pray that thou would set us free. Now, God, would grant unto us a blessed day in thy house. Remember all such gatherings. Remember the internet ministry. Those who would tune in, watch before maybe going to their own church service. We pray that, Lord, it will be a blessing to them. It will instruct them and teach them. and Build them up in their most holy faith and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So shut us in with thyself and give us a blessed time in the adult Bible class. And hear us, O God, we beseech of thee. For we ask this all in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. This morning we come to conclude our series on bibliology. And that series came about as a result of a two-part study on how we got the authorized version. And I noted then, well, that was really looking at the end of the subject and not the beginning. So we came to study bibliology. We started off by looking at the doctrine of divine revelation. God is, and God has made himself known. The Holy Scriptures is God's special revelation to man. And we noted that no revelation of saving grace of God was possible within the terms, really, of the general or natural revelation because of the condition of fallen man and also because, well, it doesn't include any of those things which relate to redemption. Natural, general revelation, it's silent with respect to the exercise of mercy through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why special revelation was needed and given through the three primary modes, as we thought about, theophany, prophecy, and miracle. Now, we noted, and we noted that there arose a need for the special revelation of God to be inscripturated in order that it would remain through the ages, reach all the nations, be offered objectively to men, and have the testimony of its truthfulness within itself. And so there needed to be this inscripturation of the special revelation of God, which came in those three modes, uh, theophany, prophecy, and miracle. Now that led us on, when we thought about the inscripturation, it led us on to consider the inspiration of Scripture. One definition of inspiration is a mysterious power put forth by the Spirit of God and the authors of Holy Writ to make them write it, to guide them, even in the employment of the words that they would use, and thus preserve them from all error. And we looked at inspiration over two studies. Now, because the Scripture is inspired, then other things are consequential. We thought about the, the authority of Scripture. To believe that the Bible is authoritative is to say that it holds a final word, not science, not human reason, not human 
experience, but the Scripture has the final word of authority. There's no higher authority to appeal to than God and His Word. We then looked at the sufficiency of Scripture. To say that the Scripture is sufficient is to say that the Bible contains all that man needs for determining what he is to believe concerning God and how he is to live before God. The next characteristic of the Bible we considered as a consequence of it being inspired, being the Word of God, was the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture, well, it assumes that its meaning is accessible. Now, if it wasn't, how else then could we be made wise unto salvation? Or how else could we benefit from all the, the blessings and the hope that is contained within the Scripture of truth if the Scripture wasn't clear, if there was no perspicuity in the Scriptures of truth? Next, we thought about the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible and the original manuscripts, when properly interpreted, they will prove themselves to be without error in all matters that it addresses. Those areas, they cover, of course, theology, history, science, and all other disciplines of knowledge. We took time to deal with the so-called errors and contradictions claimed to be found in the Bible, and we were able to refute all those things. We thought then about the interpretation of Scripture. And I gave eight basic principles, hermeneutical principles of how are we to understand the Bible, how we are to interpret it. And of course, we finished off with the important point that the Holy Ghost is indispensable, indispensable for a proper interpretation and understanding of the Scripture. The next study was the indestructibility of Scripture. And we started there in Jeremiah chapter 36, and we then went through history, and we traced all the failed attempts of man to destroy the Bible and to rid the Bible from Scripture. And we found out, as always, that the Bible stands like a rock undaunted. Now, in the last two studies, we looked at the canonicity of the Scripture. I pointed out the several tests that were applied by the early church to various pieces of literature in order that they were recognized, not declared, but recognized as being part of the canon. And on the back of that, I took the Apocrypha as a case study as to why we reject its inclusion in the Holy Scripture. Now, it's great that we have a book from God which we can trust. There is no other book of which it can be said or it can be described as inspired, authoritative, Sufficient, clear, inerrant, indestructible, understandable, and complete. And that brings us right up to where we are this morning. But how do we get a grasp of the Bible? What's the big picture that it seeks to convey to us? What is the spiritual structure of the Bible? How are we to understand the doctrinal and the theological content of the Scripture? What is the framework within which we may understand the spiritual teaching of God's Word? Now, all those are important questions. And how they are answered, well, will determine how one interprets the Bible with respect to things like sin, salvation, the atonement, the church, eschatology. And you know, when that is answered correctly, how are we to understand the Bible? What's the big picture? What's the spiritual structure? What's the framework? Well, once that is answered correctly, and what I mean by correctly, I mean scripturally. 
it will safeguard us from errors in interpreting the obscure and difficult passages of God's Word. And that's why this morning, for this final installment in Bibliology, I want to consider the covenantal framework of the Scriptures. The covenantal framework of the Scriptures. When one has an understanding of this, the covenantal framework, well then, it's a good start to having a handle on the Word of God. Now, can I just say that this is a congregation which for years has had the blessing of this glorious substructure contained in and has underpinned all its teaching and preaching. This is a congregation that has had that. And you know, that is something that is not as common in other places as you might think. This is a congregation who has taught to them its underpinning, it's contained within. It might not obviously be, be, be obvious, but you've always had that covenantal framework presented to you in this congregation. And I tell you, dear friend, that is a great start to having a handle on the big picture of the Scriptures of holy truth. And that safeguards a people from going into error when they come to obscure passages, or how do we tie the whole thing together. It's something that you are to be thankful for, as I said, because it gives you an overall understanding of the Scripture. All it's recorded from the beginning, its progression in the Scripture, the center of the Scripture, and even the end, the conclusion of the Scripture. So, that's what we're thinking about this morning, this last installment, the covenantal framework of the Scriptures. Firstly, what is then covenant theology? Because that's what we're dealing with. What is covenant theology? Well, covenant theology, it's a hermeneutical framework that seeks to understand the Bible according to its covenantal structure. Covenant theology is particularly associated with Reformed theology. As one man commented, Reformed theology is covenant theology. It is a framework, as I said, for understanding the overarching storyline of the Bible. It emphasizes that God's redemptive plan and His dealings with mankind are without exception worked out in accordance with the covenants that He has sovereignly established. Now, although the importance of the divine covenants has been realized since the earliest church fathers, covenant theology was not articulated until uh, really as a thoroughly developed system of theology. It wasn't really developed or articulated until the days of the 16th and the 17th century reformers. It was the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's really a landmark 17th century document that displays a fully robust development of covenant theology. Now, it is the Scripture itself that reveals God's structure. It's the Scripture itself that reveals God's structure. His framework for the Scripture is conveyed to us in covenant language. The word covenant, it appears over 300 times in the Bible. The language of the covenant that permeates all Scripture and all the great periods of scriptural history, they're each marked by covenants. For example, when, 
when God dealt with man in His probation in the Garden of Eden, He did it under a covenant. Then after the fall, the Lord began to unfold His his plan of salvation. It was clearly upon covenantal lines that He did so. The first promise of Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15, it was a covenant promise. And from that point onwards, God revealed Himself to the patriarchs within the framework of a covenant. The New Testament is also saturated with the truth of the covenant. In Luke chapter 1, verse 72, we learn that the Son of God's incarnation was the fulfillment of His holy covenant. When the Savior instituted the Lord's Supper, He told the disciples it was a sign and a seal of the covenant. When Peter preached after the lame man was healed at the gate called Beautiful, He he told them there in Acts chapter 3 and verse 25 that the gospel of Christ was the fulfillment of of the covenant which God made with the fathers. The book of Hebrews, it's an exposition of the better covenant. It identifies Christ as the surety of the covenant, the mediator of the covenant, and it speaks of the blood of the everlasting covenant. So we can see that the language of the covenant permeates both Old and New Testament Scripture. But in addition to these references to the word covenant itself, well, much of the teaching of Scripture about the believer's relationship with the Lord, it's clearly within a covenantal framework. For example, marriage. It's a symbol of the union that the believer has with Christ. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 5. 25 to 27, and and marriage is a what? It's a covenantal relationship. Paul in Galatians chapter 4, and in dealing with the two ways in which men seek to be justified before God, of course, one's the wrong way to be justified. But he refers to Hagar and and Sarah, and he presents an allegory which he calls the, the two covenants. Scripture itself is twice called the the book of the covenant. Once in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, and once in 2 Kings chapter 23, and the verse 2. So I think we can agree that it is the Scripture itself that reveals its framework and that it's covenantal in its nature. This is not something that the Reformers read into Scripture It is something that has been recognized from Scripture. And then it's been formulated, that observation, it's been formulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 7 and the verse, or section 1. And it says there, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Covenant. And the special revelation, remember, was given, was given because there was nothing in natural or general, general revelation that would ever help us by way or in way of salvation. And so God He expressed it by way of covenant, His special revelation. Now, before I move on to an overview 
or to overview the covenantal framework of Scripture, it'd be good to briefly establish what a covenant is. And it's very, very briefly what a covenant is. A covenant is a formal arrangement between two or more parties. Biblical covenants, say, they usually involve both parties in a covenant making certain promises one to the other. Now, while biblical covenants have something in common with modern contracts, biblical covenants are not mere legal agreements between two or more parties. Covenants in the Scripture, they are grounded in a relationship of love. So, it's not just mere mechanical legal agreements, but they're founded on a relationship of love. In the Scripture, we also see that the term translated to make a covenant, it literally reads to cut a covenant. Therefore, it is a bond of an intensely personal kind made in blood. And a covenant was seen to be unchangeable and unbreakable by the sealing of it with a sacrifice and by the shedding of blood. Now, there's many, many verses that we could turn to uh, when we think about these different things that reveal to us the meaning of the covenant as between two parties involving usually uh, promises on both sides. It's something that it's not just legal and mechanical and cold and dry, but it's based in love. It is something that is intensely personal and something that is sealed by the shedding of blood. Now, I could give you many references concerning that. This is a congregation that should know those references off by heart. I'll not test you on that. But if I went down that line, well, we wouldn't finish bibliology this morning. So that's really a brief, a brief introduction to what covenant theology is. It's really the spectacles through which we read and understand the Scripture, the framework around which it is built, covenant theology. Now, that leads us on to consider, secondly this morning, what then are the covenants that the Scripture reveals? What are these covenants around which the Scripture is built? We're speaking about the covenant, uh, covenantal framework of the Scripture. Well, what are they? Well, God reveals Himself and His Word to be the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. He deals with men and for men within the framework of two great covenants, which together they cover the entire contents of Scripture, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, from a redemptive historical perspective, the covenant of works is the first covenant we see in Scripture. The first one we see in Scripture, keep that in mind. When God created man, He placed him in the garden, and He gave him one simple command. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day in which thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, you might ask, yourself, where is the covenant there? Where is the covenant there? Well, it's implied in the command. Under the terms of this command, God covenanted to confer, confirm Adam in a state of life. In other words, to give him eternal life if Adam were to perfectly obey him. 
In this covenant, well, Adam, he was the federal head of humanity. He represented us in such a way that God pledged to count what he did to us. If he had obeyed, his obedience would be ours. And all people, all the posterity of Adam would have had eternal life. Life is the promise for obedience, and death is the punishment, the promised punishment for disobedience, and that is covenantal language. Now, we know Adam, he disobeyed, and his disobedience is counted, is counted to us. We're taught that in Romans chapter 5, that we're all born in a state of sin and estrangement from God. Nevertheless, the demands of the covenant of works remains in place for all people. And that's simply because God is our Creator. And we owe, we owe our obedience unto Him. Now, with all the effects of sin upon man, guilt and corruption and inability, it necessitated another covenant which would deal first with God's estrangement from us because of our sin but also a covenant that dealt with man's estrangement from God because of his holiness. If ever man was to have eternal life. Now, God, foreseeing the fall in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, He entered into a second covenant, a covenant with Christ, a covenant which has two aspects to it. Firstly, there is the redemptive aspect in that covenant. Now, this covenant, this redemptive aspect of this covenant was made between the Father and the Son. The Son of God covenanted with the Father to fulfill on behalf of and instead of a people given unto Him, whom the Scripture called the elect. The same terms that Adam was under in the covenant of works. That, that's what Christ covenanted to fulfill. He stood in the stead of, and He did it for a people that was given unto Him. In other words, Christ undertook to render perfect obedience, demanded by the covenant of works, and then suffer the wrath of God that was due to the elect for breaking the covenant of works. Now, the Scripture does state, does explicitly state the eternal nature of the plan of salvation. There's many, many verses we could turn. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. Christ, He often revealed that His work on earth was carrying out the Father's will. He speaks of that often in, in the book of John. The salvation of the elect was God's intention from the, from the very beginning of creation, and it cannot be doubted. It cannot be doubted. We must also, we must not think that the Holy Spirit had no part in that redemptive aspect of the eternal covenant. You know, we often speak that it's made between the Father and the Son. But we must not think that the Holy Spirit had no part in that. Why? Well, He is the applier of redemption to His people, and that leads us on to the second aspect of this, this covenant this eternal covenant. See, it's because Christ stood 
as a surety for the people that God covenanted to bestow upon those people, upon the elect, the blessings of Christ's redemption. Christ is the federal head of His people, and, and when they have trusted in Christ, His perfect obedience is imputed to them as righteousness, and God declares them as righteous. They are justified in God's sight. Having in Christ fulfilled the covenant of works, they become the inheritors of eternal life, the, the promise that was held out to Adam at the very beginning. And that, dear friend, is nothing but grace, the unmerited favor of God towards those who are undeserving and undeserving. This is the covenant of grace, a, a covenant that is founded on redemption. What a wonderful thing that is, the covenant of grace. Two aspects, the redemptive aspect that Christ accomplished, that the Spirit applies, and in the gracious aspect that you and I receive all the benefits of what Christ has done for no good reason in us. Hence, the covenant of grace founded upon redemption. Now, some would try to argue that faith, that faith is a condition to receive all the blessings of redemption, and therefore it cannot be by grace. Well, the Bible clearly teaches that saving faith is a gracious gift from God as well. Ephesians chapter 2, and that was also purchased by Christ in redemption. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 again, section 3, puts it like this. The man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein He freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him. Remember, the faith is purchased, that they might be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able believe. So, God is seen to dealt with some, to deal with some in the covenant of grace. And those are the two covenants that really entire the whole content of Scripture, one of works made with Adam at the beginning, one in which he failed, and then one of grace. And it's within those two covenants that God deals with men, that God has given us His special Revelation. Now, the covenant of grace was revealed immediately to man after his fall and his failure in the covenant of works. And that's seen in Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put Edmund between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here is the first promise of the one who would come to accomplish redemption, the seed of the woman progressively revealed throughout the rest of the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament to be Jesus Christ. Now, because we're looking at bibliology and the covenantal framework of the Scriptures, I want to consider how this covenant of grace unfolded 
throughout the Scriptures. This is a framework upon which all the narratives, all the accounts of history, all the events we read of, they're all built around this covenant, the unfolding of the covenant of grace. And that's our third point this morning, how the covenant of grace has unfolded through the Scripture. It's like the scaffolding, the scaffolding upon which it's all built, the skeleton upon which the rest of the Scripture is fleshed out how the covenant of grace has unfolded through the Scriptures. Well, uniquely, the covenant of grace, it's unfolded in a series of covenants that God makes at different periods of time. Romans chapter 9 and verse 4, it speaks of the covenants. It's not speaking there of the covenants of works and the covenants of grace. It speaks of the covenants. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it tells us of the covenants of promise. An interesting phrase because covenants is in the plural, but promise is in the singular. Therefore, it must be kept in mind that there is, there is one and the same covenant of grace that is progressively revealed and is administered under different modes through the Scriptures of truth. These covenants, they do not set forth different ways or salvation, nor do they lend any credence to dispensationalism. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These different covenants, they, they do not detract from the unity of the one great spiritual covenant of grace, which has always been God's answer to deal with the needs of sinful men. What they do do is make a clearer and fuller annunciation of the one who would be the mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he would accomplish by his work. Each of those covenants. Now the first one I've already mentioned, found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And that's often referred to as the Adamic covenant. That promise there. What's the second? The next great period of history. Well, it's the Noah covenant. Sometimes it's also called the covenant of continuation. The Noah covenant was a covenant made between God and Noah in which the Lord promised that He would never destroy the world again with a flood. That He would never destroy all life with a flood. We find that in Genesis chapter 8, verse 23 to chapter 9 and the verse 17. Now you might ask yourself, well, where is the covenant of grace in that covenant? that the Lord would promise not to flood or destroy the world again with a flood. Well, quite simply, God there promised that He would preserve the earth because it was the stage. Earth was the stage on which redemption would be accomplished, on which redemption would be played out. Christ came to earth. And redemption is first applied to God's people why they are on this earth. And that's why the Lord promised that He wouldn't destroy the world again with a flood. That's what reveals, that's an aspect of grace, that this earth is the stage upon which redemption is played out. Christ came, fulfilled the covenant of works by His life of a perfect obedience in this world, under the law being a true man, and redemption is first applied, not fully, we can say, of course, because it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, but it's first applied to God's elect while they're on this earth. And so, 
There's the aspect of grace within that Noahic covenant. The third covenant that marks a period of history is the Abrahamic covenant. We find that first in Genesis chapter 12. Turn there, Genesis chapter 12, and we read verses 1 to 3. And here's this framework being built up as the covenant of grace is being unfolded. The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, here in verse, uh, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, as he was known there, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And here we find that God reveals to Abram, that he would bless the entire world through one family and through one son from that family in particular. God made a covenant with the patriarch, Abraham, or Abram as he is here. Gracious. By grace, God chose him. God called him. A gracious covenant to give him many descendants, to give him a good land, to give him a great name. The Apostle Paul, he tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the seed of Abraham through which God would bless the nations of this world is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a clear, a fuller. The earth is going to be the stage. But this seed, this promised seed, there in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 was going to come through this, this one family of, of Abraham. And this this promise, this, this covenant with Abraham, it's reaffirmed in, in Genesis 17 and Genesis 22. The fourth covenant that marks a period of history is the Mosaic Covenant. It's also known by some as the Law Covenant. Now, it stands out for its extensive legal regulations and sacrificial system. The covenant theology, it recognizes that men and women are redeemed. They're redeemed under the Mosaic Covenant through faith in God's promises alone just as they're saved in every era during the covenant of grace. They're saved in the same way. Nevertheless, the Mosaic law and covenant that Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, it holds out the promise of life. That Mosaic covenant, it holds out the covenant or the promise of life to all who keep it perfectly. Now we also see that in Leviticus chapter 19, or 18, sorry, in the verse 5. The Lord says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. The promise of life is held out under that Mosaic covenant, under the law. Yet God never intended the Mosaic law, the moral law, and never intended it as a means of salvation for sinners. Instead, the law and showing that man cannot keep it, it pointed sinners to the ceremonial law at that time. And in the ceremonial law, Christ was typified and foreshadowed in the sacrifices. In short, the Mosaic Covenant, it reminds us of the covenant of works, yes. The promises held out in it. But 
It is not itself a covenant of works to the sinner. It is rooted in grace because it is, as we're told in the New Testament, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The fifth covenant marks a period of history, the Davidic covenant. Sometimes theologians might call it the covenant of kingship or the royal covenant. It identifies the one family descended from Abraham in whom God would accomplish all the promises to His people. And in the Davidic covenant, God promised David from the tribe of Judah. You see, it was becoming clear. It's progressively being revealed. There it was the earth. It was going to be the stage. It was going to be the seed of the woman. Going to come from Abraham's family. And now it's being narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. And God promised David. He promised him an everlasting throne and a son to build a temple, but also that his seed would sit upon the throne forever and have an everlasting kingdom. The Davidic covenant, well, it's, it's given in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and also in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, and Isaiah 11, they both predict the exaltation of David's throne over the nation. As you know, that covenant... Well, it reveals the kingship of Christ, His exaltation and the everlasting nature of that kingdom. It follows then that those who are united to Him share in that glorious kingdom. There again is grace. Christ is David's greater Son, in whom that covenant has its fulfillment. And that brings us to what the Scripture calls the new covenant. The new covenant. We read that this morning. All of the other covenants under the covenant of grace, the unfolding of the covenant of grace through these different covenants, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all these, they're fulfilled in the new covenant made by God in Christ with His people. That new covenant's announced that portion we read, Jeremiah chapter 31, is inaugurated in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. That new covenant is continued in the ministry of the church, and it's consummated at the return of Jesus Christ at the end of history. The new covenant began in the work of Christ, but the fullness of its blessings will not arrive until He returns. All the earlier covenants, they point forward to the new covenant and Christ, in various ways, he fulfills the promises between God and his people contained in that one covenant of grace. The confession, it sums up the unfolding of the covenant of grace through biblical history like this. And I quote section chapter 7 again. This covenant, covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had the full remission of sins and eternal salvation. 
and is called the Old Testament. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinance in which this covenant, the same covenant, don't forget, is dispensed, or the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in them, it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. The Old and the New Testament are but different administrations of the one and the same covenant of grace. And if you understand that, that's a good framework upon which to build your biblical theology. Now, as I conclude this morning, we see the covenant of grace in action throughout the Old Testament when God spares, He spares His people the judgment that their repeated sin deserves. It's an action there. Even though the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant promise God's judgment upon Israel for their disobedience to His commands, God deals patiently with His covenant people. Why does He do this? If the Mosaic Covenant had promised punishment upon a people for their continued sin and disobedience, why does God bear patiently with Israel? Why does He continually come to their rescue time and time again? And as he deals patiently with them, it's usually accompanied there with a reference to the covenant that's made with Abraham. For example, in, in 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 23. Why does he do that? Because he's working with them in the covenant of grace. The seed of the woman must come through that line. It's because Christ the Redeemer, it is because of him that God dealt with them so graciously. He's dealing with them in the covenant of grace. The entire story of redemptive history as recorded in the Scripture can be seen as God unfolding the covenant of grace from its budding there in Genesis 3.15 to its fruition in Christ. Covenant theology, covenantal framework of Scripture is therefore a very Christ-centered way of looking at the Bible because it sees in the Old Testament the promise of Christ. And in the New Testament, the fulfillment in Christ. Some have accused covenant theology as teaching what is called replacement theology. That is, that the church replaces Israel. This could not be further from the truth. Unlike dispensationalism, covenant theology does not see a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Israel constituted the people of God in the Old Testament, the church which is made up of Jew and Gentile, will they constitute the people of God in the New Testament with both making up the people of God as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Why there is any amount of material and avenues that I could have went down concerning the covenant of grace, I simply wanted to briefly give and unfolding off it through the biblical record. And I trust in that way you see the covenantal framework of the Scriptures. 
And that's a very good basis on which to build the rest of your biblical theology. Praise God for the covenant of grace. Praise God for the last Adam, the surety, the mediator of that covenant. For he fulfilled the redemptive aspect, accomplished it, and the Spirit applied it, applies it. And so you and I, we graciously receive it. We are a blessed people. We are a covenant people. And of course, we are only chosen out of His sovereign and infinite grace. Let's bow for prayer and ask the Lord to bless us. Study to a heart that brings an end to our series on bibliology. I want to do that. It's a much fuller subject, covenant theology, of course, but it ties in there with having a handle and a grasp and an understanding of the Scriptures of Holy Truth. Let's unite in prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to Thee and we thank Thee for the great covenant of grace summed up in those glorious words that, Lord, that You would be our God and we would be Thy people. Lord, we thank Thee for Christ and we thank Thee for all that He accomplished on our behalf. We bow before Thee and we thank Thee, Lord, that Thou art the one who will not alter that thing that has gone forth out of thy lips. You're the one who makes and keeps covenant. Thou art the Lord. Lord, I pray for thy blessing upon us this morning. I pray, O God, that you will help thy servant in morning worship. I pray that he will, uh, Lord, again preach that the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Lord, that you would bless us as a people. Truly, as a congregation has been blessed. Lord, blessed, they have a good, strong superstructure upon which to base and build all their theological thinking. And Lord, this is a rich blessing indeed. And we pray, O God, that Thou would ever maintain, O God, that type of preaching in this house. So do us good this morning, and may the hand of God be upon us. For these things we ask in the Saviour's precious and worthy name. Amen.